Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, we are returning to Company of Heroes 3 and its multiplayer design, and to discuss that, I'm joined by Matt Phillip and Will Ward from Relic. Uh, Matt, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. So, I've had a chance to play a little bit of uh, Company of Heroes 3 uh, multiplayer, most like in Skirmish and such against the AI. And uh, unfortunately, I've not improved with age, on, like when it comes to playing Company of Heroes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm falling back into some old patterns, which is just trying to cling to life to re- reach the mid game and then just sort of cheese steamroll my way back across the map uh, behind some armor. Uh, but beyond that, um, I'm like still reckoning with the fact that like I have a style of play. The game supports many styles of play. I just happen to happen to be crap at like 90% of them, uh, I, I, w- I would say. Um, so I guess at a very at a very high level, though, um, where I'd love to start is that superficially, I think it's very easy to think Company of Heroes multiplayer is Company of Heroes multiplayer. Like we all have a sense of what that looks like, what, what the game looks like. Uh, on the other hand, I know that in the community, like, and playing it for myself, Company of Heroes 1 is a really different animal from Company of Heroes 2. Uh, when we look at Company of Heroes 3, what are kind of the, the the classic pillars, if you will, that like you sort of view as like sacred and you have to protect uh, when it comes to like the Company of Heroes identity? And then what is like the specific, tr- like what, what's sort of the specific pitch for Company of Heroes 3 that like sort of sets it apart from what we've seen before. Hmm. Oh boy. All right. So, I mean, <sighs> Company of Heroes, you're right. That Company of Heroes has a classic formula that has retained itself between Company of Heroes 1 and 2, and it will be uh, with 3 as well. And in terms of gameplay, so for example, that's all about, we want strategy and tactics to kind of trump dexterity. We want uh, that to be really... You know, in depth, we want to have unique armies, asymmetrical armies. We want to have, like you said, different ways to play, you know, brand new creative ways to play. Uh, and those are some of kind of the, we also want kind of a immense variety as well as I would say that was, that one's a little bit for Company Heroes 3. We want to have more builder orders than ever before. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, well, what about you? What do you think in terms of some of this stuff? And what about the new additions as well? Yeah, so while we, we have tried to focus on keeping the core gameplay that has made Company of Heroes what it is, the newer additions are trying to improve where possible. Um, so things like normal cover gameplay is very much what you would expect from Company of Heroes 1 or 2, uh, but newer additions, things like height gameplay, have diversified it, and it's allowed us to build new environments, new maps that players hadn't really seen before. Um, and the same goes for our faction designs, which Matt can definitely talk more to. But the faction design this time around is fresh. Battle groups are also a new uh, a new approach. So some of the similarities are still there, but the way we're built on top of them um, are quite unique this time around. Mm-hmm. You want to get to the um, like like to the map design in some way because that's one of the first things that jumped out at me is that it feels a lot more granular in terms of how combat is unfolding and like the specific deployment of where different units are, where like who's firing on who from where uh, 
if I think back to Company of Heroes 1 and, and 2 in a lot of ways, it's kind of, it tends to be kind of uh, binary, right? You're either in high cover or you're, or you're not. You're in light cover or, or you're not. Um, and, and that tends to be, that's just sort of how you quickly sort of spot check the strength of a position or not. And at first, like, that's still, that's still all here. But then there is the fact that the maps have a bit more like roll and rise to the terrain. And so you will have, like, I'm thinking one map in particular that I probably ended up playing the most just because it was sort of the most compact was uh, Twin Beaches. Oh, yes. Uh, is a is a really cool map. It appears to be like uh, like maybe the Anzio landing zone uh, somewhere in Italy, just a sort of torn up, uh, you know, uh, like landing landing site in, in Italy, but also there's like a bombed out ruined seaside town nearby. So you have an, a fairly open but fortified beach on one side of the map. And then rising up from the shore, you have a town um with some with some hills some some uh bombed out streets and some buildings and one of the things that that generates is when you have like a fight happening down on the shore and near the shore uh it's all like okay units are in high cover units are in low some units are in the open fine but then you'll have guys shooting down from the seaside road um down on the ground and suddenly there's different things being implied, mm-hmm. right? There's there's a notion that 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 binary that we're used to seeing, which is like, well, I've got my guys behind those big metal uh, like anti tank obstacles, so my infantry squad's going to win this fight. That now gets complicated by the fact somebody might be on a hill or on a uh, like on a lighthouse uh, sort of balcony uh, nearby that changes how that's applied. And I'm curious both. If you could talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how that works, but then how are you, how do you also keep that from maybe overcomplicating uh, what has been a pretty, like, nice thing about binary is very legible, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, talk me through the logic and then how you're sort of uh, keeping the cognitive load uh, under control. Sure. Do you want to start with this one, Matt, or shall I? Yeah, you go ahead and start. So uh, if we're using Twin Beaches as an example, that is a map that I wanted to uh, play almost in rotations. So as, even though the enemy um, and your own base are pretty much a straight line away from each other, all the resources are, are a ring around the map itself. So almost in trying to capture the map, you are going to end up flanking the enemy in some way, or at least you'll end up running into the enemy behind their front line. Um and that is that's always been a core part of the company Furious gameplay in that if the enemy has cover, you can either try and negate it with things like grenades or flamethrowers, or you can just flank it and just remove that advantage altogether. With Twin Beaches, what we wanted to do is have that height gameplay kind of along the middle line. So you have the, the ruins at the top, which we coined uh, Mount Bacon, or I should say Matt coined Mount Bacon. Um, <laughs> and then you have the uh, the pier and the the seaside village kind of towards the middle and then you have the lighthouse station itself and even though those locations aren't the most strategically viable it does give you a great advantage if you can take them at that right moment holding them for the entire match won't really do you any favors there's very little resources for example the the lighthouse has very little going for it but you can use that height there to essentially flank the enemy regardless of whether or not it's actually flanking them in cover because it negates their cover advantage 
but you are right in that this might cause some some confusion or additional complexity which is why we want to kind of reduce the number of locations that occurs in the lighthouse for example is very prominent the ruin at the top is also quite prominent uh, what we wouldn't want necessarily is for it to appear everywhere and players have no idea where it's likely to trigger mm-hmm yeah, just yeah, it needs to be readable in the end. So just to add on to some of Will's comments there. So, you know, when it comes to map design for Company of Heroes, like there it's a very like this is a strategy game with a delicate ecosystem and maps play a huge part in that. And our maps have historically had that formula of cover, of territory, of buildings. Um, and with buildings, for example, you've got, you know, you have your counterplay in the sense that if there's someone in a building, okay, well, you may have uh, mortars available or a flamethrower grenade or some type of counterplay. So in the case of height gameplay, which as Will states, what happens is how it exactly works is if you have a height advantage over your opponent, it actually negates any cover that they have. So if they are in a cover position and you have a height, uh, ele- if you're elevated in a height position around them, then the, then your opponent isn't receiving any cover. And you actually even have an accuracy bonus on top of that. So pretty much you're in a superior spot. But as a result, we want to make sure that, again, that ecosystem, we need to balance that out where there needs to be counterplay, whether with, with a, within the map itself or within the factions. So maybe that's simply, okay, he's in a superior advantage. I just need to back off. Maybe that's making use of mortar smoke to actually creep in. Maybe that's finding a flanking route or doing something else. But yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. And this is where we've kind of been working, um, as you're aware, we're doing a co-development program. And we get to what's fantastic about this is Will and I can watch our closed group members play this map, analyze it, and then come out of that and talk through the whole everything. And we can just be like, okay, there's... Uh, you know, in this particular area of the map, you know, there's, you know, uh, maybe it's a little imbalanced or maybe there's a cover position that favors or a height advantage to one one side or the other. Um, so that's been invaluable to us uh, so far. Yeah, hearing, hearing you talk about map dynamics, dynamics, it sort of occurred to me, and maybe this has always been true uh, of the previous games. I'm just noticing it more with this one. Um, but there is a feel sometimes that like depending on the map you're playing a different game uh i was getting like i was, I was getting uh sort of flashes too i'm digging into like uh like tabletop war games right where like uh depending on the scenario like it's the same rule set but effectively you kind of have to learn a different game based on the based on the scenario and I was having some of that uh, as I was working through this because so to like with with Twin Beaches, for instance, you know, you have that rotation uh, sort of dynamic that you're describing. And you also have this sense of one half of the map is very relatively open. Um, and then you have slightly more treacherous, uh, light, lightly developed like uh, village streets uh, nearby. But I was comparing that to, so like that, everything felt pretty viable there though. Like if I was going with infantry heavy or armor heavy, all of it seemed pretty workable there. Like it would change how I approached the map, but it all, but it all like roughly, uh, everything was adaptable to that scenario. But I'm, when I'm thinking about, um, now I, 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 the names didn't stick as well with me. Dense town built around a canal, central bridge uh toronto um, mm-hmm. yes that's just dense street fighting 
mm-hmm. and the height advantage becomes, and it's very, very well signaled because the level's almost terraced, right? Yes. Um, but there, my experience was if I'm going to try, like, I basically stopped trying to uh, do armored focused plays uh, on that map uh, because they were just, it was too treacherous getting the tanks through there. It was like, it was infantry paradise. And so it turned into a very sort of different game in some ways. Cause here it's like armor is playing a support, a supporting role. It's not like tanks have nothing to do here, but especially in that early, in, in those early days, now those abilities that exist for infantry to counter armor, much more dangerous. A bazooka team on that map, far more effective than four guys running along a beach with a bazooka, right? If they're in a, mm-hmm. if they're in a house on a terrorist, uh, you know, part of the town, then they're much more dangerous. And so as I'm, as I'm playing that scenario, um, that scenario, I'm playing a map, but in terms of how I'm approaching it, it becomes a different scenario because it just has completely different dynamics. Uh, it is a series that that map is like a series of hellish choke points uh, and really like, naughty tactical problems and in a, in a weird way it felt like um where twin beaches was very dynamic i found my battles there tended to become a series of like really interesting set pieces where like how am i going to storm this this courtyard how am i going to quickly set up and defend it so i don't just get pushed right off it again how do i control that central bridge um by the way how do i control that central bridge <laughs> so uh that was that was uh an, an interesting experience because it was like okay here we're playing the same rule set but suddenly like the um like uh fall, like the Luftwaffe build that i wasn't having a lot of luck with uh on like twin beaches suddenly i was favoring that more than my sort of armored uh build and I'd just love to hear you like chat about to what degree does do you look do you, do you approach map design as like kind of building a different experience of the game? To what degree are you trying to create like problems and little like almost stories within the map? So I suppose before I get into that too heavily, I wanted to kind of also mention that the factions themselves are designed in a way that you can usually approach different problems in different ways. Your your battle groups, as you mentioned, might be more favorable to certain situations, and you have that choice when you play them. Um, and because of that, that's why I like having the maps that I design to, to be different to each other where I can. I want to kind of encourage different styles of play, but you can still try the, the same ways that you are successful with. Um, even if it means you know smashing your head against a brick wall just to get it to work, it will eventually work. Um, but yeah, when, especially compare the comparison between those two maps, one is very tight. It's got plenty of choke holds. It's a bit of a labyrinth um, compared to open and dynamic play. But I always like having that variety because it does encourage me to think differently about how I would play. Personally, I'm I'm more of what well, at least I used to be more of a casual player, um, whereas now I'm more competitive. So it's nice to go back to those different routes and and try designing them in very different styles where I can, or having chokeholds where others might not. Um, but you you also raised a very nice point, something I'm I'm always happy about. Our our tagline for this game is uh, every battle tells a story, and I love that with our territory sectors, especially returning to Company of Heroes One, uh, Company of Heroes One's style of territory sectors where there are high, medium, and low resource points. By having higher resource points in certain areas, we can make those 
environments more dynamic. We tend to call them, or at least I call them encounter spaces. So for example, the bridge on the map that you were talking about that goes across the middle, that is an absolute nightmare. But the amount of stories that you get out of fighting in that location is is excellent because it just encourages those those meat grinders. Um, and I, I personally love building those areas across all my maps, regardless of whether it's a competitive map or a casual map. I like having those small stories or at least the set pieces for them so that when players enter them, they create their own stories within. Yeah, I don't have too much to add on to what Will just mentioned there, but I think at a high level, we are definitely trying to push map variety and diversity further than ever before. We're in the Mediterranean this time around. There's just so many, again, like we want to expand and push and do different things with our maps. I know height, of course, we've touched on that, but even just something like airfields, there's going to be more airfield maps than ever before. We're going to flesh out that that set. We're going to have trench warfare be a bit more of a thing as well that kind of supports, you know, some of these, these airfield moments. And, um, you know, I think, you know, it's cool that you found new creative ways on different maps. We want, you're right, that like tabletop, it's kind of like, okay, you put up this blanket slate in front of you. It's a new tactical situation. How am I going to approach this? And I think, you know, as Will and you both mentioned, like certain battle groups might kind of be better suited to certain maps and that might be okay. But where one of the things we'll want to make sure that we stay very closely in touch with our players is we don't want the core faction to break down on any type of map. And this is where we had some challenges actually before, for example, in Company of Heroes 2, where if you take an urban map, we want to make sure that every faction has the necessary capabilities to deal with a tight urban map um, so that you're not like, oh, man, I'm playing this faction and oh, what tools do I have in the early game to deal with buildings? Oh, then it's not quite there or as accessible as some of the other factions. So that's where we kind of want to make, we want to make sure that we equalize kind of the, uh, the factions across the board with how they can approach the maps. Let's get into that a little bit because I, I think it's interesting how these things interact where one, you have the overarching faction design, uh, which is, like f familiar though i would say say different as well like these americans don't feel like the company of heroes one one's america one one americans and neither frankly does does the Wehrmacht. like it feels like when these two armies are, are sort of smashing into each other i don't know it's like everything looks sort of similar but it's all real different than i it took me a while to sort of come to grips with mm -hmm. this too where it was like i sort of remember the americans in coming of heroes one just being this kind of like zerg is the wrong way to use like to put it but they would just kind of keep coming right and like the idea was they die in droves but if they could get veterancy um they would start you know being a a, a real potent force uh but i remember it, it, it like as the americans sort of being kind of everywhere at once uh and as a german player I'd sort of be playing whack-a-mole with them in the early game until we started to <laughs> Uh, stabilize the map situation and here it felt almost reversed where like the americans i'm just like where is this german infantry coming from like how do they have <laughs> so many dudes and why are their dudes so like hitting so hard um but so like there's there's sort of that faction identity uh in play then you have the battle groups um and then you have sort of different build decisions you're going to sort of make in the um like upgrade trees for your for your battle groups and there's systems even uh 
within that that we can get to in a second. Um, but all of this is happening contextually as well, where there might be the build that I'm trying to take into the battle, but then also because I ended up being driven off a bunch of the ammunition points early. I'm not going to have the ammo, like I'm just not going to be able to deploy like explosives uh, as, as much as I could have. And so talk me through like the, the overall framework for both designing faction identity and then like battle group identity. And then how do you want players to be experiencing uh, and interpreting these decisions they, they're sort of making along the way uh, in the system? Yeah, there is, boy, there is a lot that goes into our faction design. And I think, you know, in terms of the framework of a faction, so, you know, you've got the unit roster, you have the tech tree, you have the unit, or sorry, the abilities and upgrades. You've got the general flow from the early game, mid game into the, the late game transition. Um, you also have the battle groups, you also have faction mechanics, and there's just so many different layers to be applied to a faction and then bring them all together. That's a lot to absorb as a player and even as a designer making these factions. Like it, There's a lot of pieces that go into them. Um, and it's really interesting to see and work on. But um, yeah, and then there's also, there's the thematic approach or authenticity. And there's like, you know, what generally do we want with the themes of these armies? So, you know, if we were to take the American faction and the Wehrmacht, we, we know that working with our players. So for example, we've done, because we've done two previous games now, we've done, we've done nine factions in total thus far. So we've kind of been able to understand like, our boundaries of where we can push certain aspects of the factions. Um, but it was a, you know, as initially is a bit of a challenge uh, with both of these factions um, out of the gate where, especially with like, like if I use the Americans, for example, it's like, okay, well, let's see, we've used 90% of what they've ever, you, you know, like uh, in terms of vehicles and equipment, we pretty much used like almost everything in the two previous games. How are we going to make these guys feel this army feel fresh? So that's one of the initial creative challenges right out of the gate. So this is where, okay, well, we get we have to kind of get a little bit creative here and go, well, okay, well, if the unit roster is going to be somewhat similar, and this is where we, for example, state that the Americans is our at-home faction. We want players to be familiar. You know, there's classic riflemen, HMT teams, things like that. But then we inject new pieces of the puzzle. So for example, their, new, uh, their scout is a new starting unit. They've got a dedicated bazooka unit, uh, bazooka team squad. They have uh, some light vehicles like the Chaffee light tank. And that kind of... So that kind of helps give us like, cause we're always asking our players, is there enough new? Cause we want to kind of, not that we always work in the rule of thirds, but we want them to be familiar, but also have enough new with the factions. Um, so we, you know, so we apply new units, then we dress on battle groups on top. And it's all about having enough new creative ways to play. I think in the end, cause this is a brand new game as well. Um, yeah, I don't know, Will, any thoughts? I mean, you sort of already mentioned as well that um, as well as having new elements to each faction, we are also kind of governed by uh, the theater that they're in. In the Italian theater, the the Americans were very much on the offense. The Vermeck were very much on the defense. Um, so that kind of core is built into the factions and their mechanics. But as we previously mentioned, we don't necessarily want one to be so defensive that it can't ever be an offensive faction. I'm actually quite glad to hear that you struggled against the amount of German infantry when you were playing against them, because that means our AI is working and that they can work as quite an offensive force. Um, 
but yeah, that I mean, you've, you've already said just about everything I possibly could. Faction design this time around has been challenging, but it's also been great to add these new layers to it that we didn't necessarily have or even iterate upon, like veterancy, um, which is returning, but is returning in a new way for, for both the factions that you can play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great po- touch point, Will, in terms of the uh, theater as well. So, um, as Will stated, like, so for example, both of these factions feature, they're a little more infantry centric than they've ever been because that's appropriate to the Mediterranean. In Italy, holy smokes, it was an infantry slog, primarily with infantry, artillery, and air support and armor. You know, it certainly did play a factor at times, but uh, not as much in some of the major battles. So that's where, for example, if we look at the, the German faction this time around, they actually, where traditionally we usually have just like, for example, if you're familiar with Company Heroes 2, there's the Grenadiers, and that's kind of your mainstay infantry throughout the course of the battle. In the case of the German army this time, they actually have four uh, infantry squads, different infantry squads available to them in the Panzer Grenadiers, the Grenadiers, the Jägerlites, and the Staustruppen. And they all have different capabilities, and that, that'll take a little bit of time, but that, I think, is what's going to give a little bit of the flavor to this faction because there was um quite a bit of a strong desire from both internally and working alongside our players that we really wanted to give this faction a, a good facelift. Like we've done four or five Axis factions by now. So we really wanted to make sure that this was fresh and appealing to our, to our players. Yeah. The German faction was, uh, really interesting i I did not i did not think there was going to be a lot of uh like fresh ground to tell there but i was sort of struck at how interesting the infantry were oftentimes like the the way the faction ends up being treated just crossing games in general is like (laughs) where where are my tigers at right that that is that is kind of where (laughs) things go is like well time for the germans to roll out their elephant tank or whatever uh and here it became very much more like i actually ended up fearing their infantry a lot more uh than their armor in in some ways because like and and playing them likewise feeling super um like dude when the when the stoss trooping came out i was like well that's just a win button like those those guys were like uh the terminators in dawn of war in in some ways (laughs) oh yes (laughs) just infantry the stick grenade ability the uh grenade bundle ability where they just basically like turn into a mobile like cluster bomb uh on enemy infantry it's just wild uh and i was like mm-hmm. they couldn't be everywhere at once but like where they showed up um that that fight was gonna end uh if if there was other infantry around yeah they can hit hard for sure um with you mentioned veterancy uh and this was another thing that sort of struck me i'm curious like is that i guess the the one thing that threw me and it's, it's not a complaint. It just threw me, and I'm, I'm curious if there's, if there's more coming. So early on, when your unit sort of achieves its tier one veterancy, you kind of get to choose a veterancy perk. Like, what's the the build for this unit going to be? What's it it what's it what's going to do? Uh, it doesn't seem like the same thing happens when you hear hit, like, veterans, like, higher levels of veterancy. Um, and I'm curious, like, is is the idea that now they just sort of get, like, better and hardier uh, as as they skill up? past that first uh, build decision or are you imagining an entire veterancy tree around like levels of veterancy because that interface is pretty jam-packed i'm like i don't yeah. know that there's many more buttons you can jam on this before yeah. like you start running cutting against your your uh your prime directive of like this shouldn't be 
um, who can click fastest in some ways. And yeah, you're like sort of butting up that little grid of buttons is already pretty full. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's veterancy. That's one that's evolved over time for sure. So referencing the American veterancy that has that choice where you're you're making at vet one, you make a choice between either an offensive capability or defensive capability. Those can either be active or passive depending on the unit. But we actually, uh, to your point, in the early stages of that veterancy system, we actually had a choice at every level of veterancy. So for vet one, you'd make a choice. At vet two, you'd make a choice. And at vet three, you would then make a choice. But we found through playing uh, internally and alongside our players that that, like you just stated, like it, it becomes too much to manage, especially in the heat of the battle. You have to think too, yeah. as you're transitioning into a mid game battle or a late game battle and you're, you're like, holy smoke, you're trying to micro your whole front line. And then you're like, well, wait a second, I've got to make some decisions in like the heat of battle. It becomes a little more taxing. Um, so what we did is we just streamlined it so that you made it. So you make that primary decision of your, for the, your ability and the rest is pretty classic company, a heroes veterancy where they're just gaining passive, uh, stat increases that uh, bolster that. Um, what's the driver for these choices on the German side? Cause they do have a sort of toggle that you're going to determine what the, uh, unit sort of builds out into, mm-hmm. um, what determines that? Will, do you want to speak to this one? Yeah, so um, the Vermac, by comparison, they don't have necessarily a choice per unit. They have an an overarching theme. So they have um, access to three different field marshals. These field marshals will bring um, a unique veterancy ability to every unit across the the entire faction. So, for example, if you were to go for the uh, Special Operations field marshal, it means that all of your units, whether it's uh, everything from lowly grenadiers to the brumbar their veterancy ability will be based on that theme um for example infantry uh, within special operations will capture territory faster once they hit veterancy one um vehicles will have access to camouflage team weapons will have access to unique uh, munitions so it's a choice that you can make as early or as late into the game as you like um but in doing so you're essentially setting an additional theme for your army Based on the play style, I, I personally, I tend to go for special operations because I like the aggressiveness of it. I like being able to capture faster. But if you were to go for, say, mechanized, you would be basically yeah. setting yourself up to have a more mobile, light armored um, force. doesn't mean that you can't build whatever army you want to, but you will have veterancy abilities that kind of promote that style of gameplay. Yeah. Because I'm th- I'm thinking about like yeah there was uh, one game where I had a I had a stealth stug uh, that just got fed out of control and turned into maybe the deadliest armored vehicle I've ever had in a, t- in a company of heroes <laughs> game uh, where it was like the first it was the first tank that rolled off the line right and I was like you just need to keep these fucking chaffies like away from me like shoot get out of here. Um, and like it just never died and once it got yeah because it had the it was the thing where when stationary it'd be like invisible yes it Uh, camouflages yeah camouflage yeah yeah that thing was um is that that's an inherent stug ability or is that related to the field marshal it's related to the field marshal so that's that that's passive yeah so for example with the field marshal choice you have it impacts so again at a high level where you've got the americans that you're making a choice per unit and in the case of the German army, you're pretty much making a choice for your army. So in that case, you, yeah. you pick 
special operations, which then impacts the infantry and the vehicles differently. So for the vehicles based on the field marshals, there's one that allows you to hold down. There's another that provides camouflage net. And I think there's another that also provides some offensive capabilities. Yeah, the camouflage net was ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> like, like in a good way, but it was like, yeah. I think it was just um, si- like sitting there uh, like the alien, just like ready to uh, just absolutely... Uh, knife American units as they came up. Um, so one of the other one of the other uh, things that's that's going on here is that I haven't played. Um, <coughs> I went back and familiarized myself with the with the company heroes like back when we were having these conversations uh, a few months ago. But I think one of the things that I have a very hard time getting out of my head is something, a dynamic that I encounter in a lot of RTSs, which is win and then win more, right? Where it's, where it's very much like you win the first engagements, the thing snowballs uh, pretty predictably from there. But like a lot of RTS games that I play do tend to, it's not that you can't turn a game around. It's not that you, you, you can't like have comeback mechanics, but in general, they tend to be games of like, um, you know, you get small wins, you convert those into more resources, slightly more material advantage, you get bigger wins, and you just keep you just keep adding on to it. What sort of uh struck me here is that Company of Heroes has a lot of comeback dynamics in it. Uh I think probably been there for a while, like upkeep still plays that role of uh like just making it so that like if you're sort of knocked back on your heels you have a chance to quickly uh get get back out there um but one of the other things that that did kind of strike me here is that if you've really like if you really know the know the factions and abilities and how they like marry to the resources you can really like turn your strategy on a dime based on what you have available and like figure out different ways of skinning a cat, uh, as it were. Right. Like if, like I was, I was sort of struck by how many times where if I was down on fuel, when I started like really digging through, well, what can I do with like manpower and explosives turns out quite a bit. Right. And that's, that's always been a feature, but like here it, it did feel like, there are more there's more recipes i suppose in the in, in the in the box uh to, to try to figure out how you can uh play from a situation uh in in this one that i that i'm used to like, i would say like going back to company of heroes 1 i would say even though those comeback mechanics still existed still feels like a game where if i don't do well in the early game uh or if i do really well in the early game that's kind of setting the trajectory for the rest of the match here it felt very much like it's nice to win the early game, but actually the following acts are going to be really different no matter what. Like it, the, the the matches seem to unfold almost as a series of discrete rounds where it's like, all right, that was our first bout. Now we're now we're going to sort of recalibrate our armies and bring out different builds. Um, and that took me a while to to grok, but it did feel distinct from most RTSs I play. And even kind of distinct from like what I played recently of like Company of Heroes One. Hmm. 
Oh man, that's actually, I, by the way, I think I'm going to steal that quote of more recipes. I think that's a great one. I like that one a lot. But like, if we look at like the legacy, for example, of some of the games at Relic, and for example, if we look at just Company Heroes 1, you're right that, you know, I remember playing with friends and they used to say, oh, well, it's just a freeze to fuel. It's a fuel race. I'm sure you probably had the same uh, experience, Will, right? And I'm not Where, sure that was wrong. I'm not yeah, sure that was wrong. I'm not. Yeah, there's certainly, I mean, in most cases, uh, in order to be successful in that game, it, it was in your best interest to focus on fuel to some degree. Specific, and also depends on the faction, too. If you, for example, like you stated, like if you were the Wehrmacht in that in, in Company Heroes 1, it's, it's, you know, it's a driving point to, towards go for the fuel because vehicles were a primary tool for that faction. So... And then, like, another thing, so, for example, you know, if I transition over to our other series, uh, Dawn of War, and, you know, I, Dawn of War 2, for example, that has a very, that's, like, I really personally love that game a lot, but it has a very, uh, what I'll call a sensitive early game, where there's not many units on the field, and if you lose one of those units, that's a pretty big um, impact to how the rest of the game's going to unfold. So, with Company Heroes 3, like you stated, you know, we kind of want the early game to matter, but it's not going to be, we want there, if you don't, you know, those first initial skirmishes within the first five minutes, it shouldn't be the end of the world. And you should be able to, you know, um, kind of re come back and reorganize your army, work with your teammate and, you know, strike maybe where the enemy isn't or pivot or back foot. Or again, maybe if you've lost a bit of the map, you should still have tools accessible to you to make a good counter push and a counter play into those zones. Um, and the mid game is a little bit more of the, like the pivotal moment of like where like we, you know, maybe a bigger swing can happen. And then it kind of only escalates from there. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Will, uh, any other thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, just thinking back to our discussion earlier on, on our map design, Twin Beaches is a great example where the, the map itself has a bit of a comeback swing to it. So um, a lot of people are fighting over the ruins to the north that have a plus 16 fuel, you know, a very high resource point. And if you're feeling you know, down on numbers or you're really struggling, if you instead just circumvent that area completely, you go for the south, you can go for two victory points and two separate fuel points. If you're fast enough, you can do more with infantry, do more damage and turn the tide of the battle with just infantry than you ever could with vehicles. Um, so it's it's nice to incorporate those those mechanics into the maps themselves, just as a, a clever way of getting back and, and watching some um, some of them are more um, competitive-minded players take advantage of these is is fascinating to watch. They're so so clever in how they do it, but yeah, it's nice to see those reaffirmed. Um, I'm trying to think though with oh i suppose one of the other um comeback mechanics that was discussed amongst the the closed group of our um co-development team is even though we've gone for the company of heroes one resource style with low medium and high resources one of the mechanics we decided not to bring back was to have territory linked to population so it used to be in Company of Heroes 1 that as you lost territory points, your population would decrease, which caused more of a snowballing effect. If you got pushed off the map entirely, your population would be far smaller than your opponents. Whereas this time we've kept with the Company of Heroes 2 styling that your population is always set. Um, so you have a means of fighting back and getting into the map without facing overwhelming numbers and odds. 
that's a great point to bring up. I actually always forget about that, but you're right that Company Heroes 1 was more punishing in that, especially for the competitive players. I remember I used to watch the 1v1s and if you were cut off, it was not only that you were cut off and you had a smaller pop cap, so trying to field the army to then counter your opponent was more difficult. So yeah, I'm glad that we've kind of stuck back to Code 2 in terms of that. I think related to that one dynamic I saw just in terms of, uh, I don't know if it's maybe properly a comeback mechanic, but it does seem like, yeah, it, it, it seems to function as such because uh, it's a way to sort of um, hamstring the other guy's resources a little bit or maybe just like sneak a few into your pocket. But um, this seems very much a game now that has a lot of different uh, avenues toward uh, like back capping, right? Uh the so the americans like both the americans and germans from the jump uh have units that are built to swiftly take uh capture points and they can build upgrades uh make decisions to increase that even further uh just like uh, across their faction but the americans start with these scout rifle teams um uh, which are sort of uh half strength infantry units uh that capture points uh what is it 50 percent quicker uh 25 about that i think so yeah, yeah. i think so but the Germans have like a little war moped uh, that <laughs> is like really fast and does like that does f- capture 50% faster. Yeah. That's the Ketten um, Yeah. I hate that little bastard. Um, <laughs> we, I love, it's one of my personal favorites, but it's a non-combat unit, but yes, it is a sneaky little devil at back capping. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that I, I noticed was that one, like, the armies fan out really quickly and start skirmishing really quickly because both have a really high incentive uh, and are empowered to just try to gobble as much as they can at the opening of the match. But I even sort of noticed that even when I was sort of sort of driven back on my heels and was trying to make do with like, okay, well, what can I, what can I build with mostly like a manpower pool uh, at this point? Um, Falling back on old bag of tricks, right? Which is like, well, I'll build prepared positions uh, because like I can't go toe to toe in the open with a tank, but like behind sandbag walls and obstacles, like an AT gun is going to win that fight. So I just need to make sure this AT gun can, can get the job done. Usually though, that's been associated with, but also now you're kind of in an Alamo situation where you really need to hope that they come into your prepared positions, you wreck them, and then you get some breathing room to go retake the map. There's still a bit of that, but now both factions also seem, even when you're sort of digging in and being like, I'm just going to try to ride out now this next phase, there's still a lot of tools where it's like, but while I'm doing that, I'm also going to start just zipping guys around the map, trying to steal resources here or just cut their supply lines uh, like near their source so that they might have map control, but like they're not going to get fed off of it. Um that was an interesting it was an it was an interesting uh change and i'm kind of like i'm I'm kind of curious like just talking about the i'd be interested to hear that like you discussed the logic of um that sort of that style of uh map control uh in in this game because it seems like this is a game that resists falling into static lines uh even more than than previous games um in part because you made a decision to make it really easy in any stage to send little harassment detachments out there just to mess with uh, resource points. 
I'll start with this one. So one of the things to note, yeah, is at a faction level, we have pretty much like these kind of somewhat similar to Company Heroes 1, like these dedicated units towards capping. Like their job is to uh, capture and or provide reconnaissance or harass the enemy lines. So you just, we've touched on the, both the Kettencrat and the Scouts. And uh, uh, our factions as a whole feature more of these types of units, these ultra light vehicles or these fast, swift um Kind of scout reconnaissance units and actually you know kudos to our ai they are actually really good right now at going behind your lines with you know one of these units um when you're in you're just focusing on a stable front line i would say that they, they taught me how to play as a matter of fact because i was like <laughs> oh that's really annoying and effective like i don't yeah. have time to send someone to go chase that scout team off uh and so yeah, yeah when i when the situation would flip i'd be like well i know that i never have guys back at that near point so i bet they don't either yeah it's definitely the hallmark of a seasoned player whenever you watch our pros go at it is that not only are they fighting on the front line but they're doing something else sneaky to either regain territory or just something else they're prepping something on the sidelines and not only yeah there's also the fact that both sides have access to airborne this time around so both uh, the Americans and the Germans have access to paratroopers that can also destabilize your lines. So that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out when both sides have access to that. Yeah. I was also going to add to it as well, like um, the idea of probing, probing the enemy front lines, trying to find gaps wherever you can. We're adding a lot more utility and tools to enable you to do that um, compared to our previous entries. So for example, on the, on the scouts, they have a, a reconnaissance package that allows them to fire flares so they can see far beyond their normal line of sight, allows you to, to check whether or not it's worth even attempting that push. The Kettencred also has, a the ability to hunker down for a second, just to scout ahead to see whether or not there's anything ahead before it, it makes the move. But we also have a, a new reconnaissance system, um, which for example, on the, the Jeep for the, the U S forces, uh, they can upgrade it to have a, a radio kit and enables them to see units within the fog of war. Um, now, Matt can speak probably more highly to this because it was one of his children, but um, being able to see units within the fog of war but not actually know what they are is so useful mm-hmm. for, for poking and prodding at the enemy um, or even just completely skipping them altogether. I'm really glad you... Bro- By the way, thank you. This is you doing my job for me. Because <laughs> I, had, like, I had a mental note ask about the recon stuff and the mm-hmm. scouting and then it completely slipped my mind because that was it that was one of the things that jumped out at me is like oh this is way more an information economy type game than either of the previous two there's yes, a definitely. lot more now on this sort of like high knowledge medium knowledge no knowledge uh mm-hmm. sort of uh spectrum yeah, did you experience the the recon system at all with either the Jeep or the German scout car during your your time with the build? Uh, I did. I also uh, experienced it probably a little more in more static games where like using offensive uh, German outposts. Uh, mm, with, uh, nice. Like so you in, made in use of that ones. one. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so did you, and... did you actually see the the markers then, the yellow markers on the map? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I'm curious if. Talk me through this because this is scouting is a a important RTS skill, mm-hmm. um, but there have like in general not too many games. Uh, well, I suppose a lot of games make some use of this, right? Like StarCraft has its um, 
sensor towers that give you a, a similar sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Company of Heroes traditionally has been like you either have something having eyes on a space, or it's just the void. Um, yeah, you're right. And but but also scouting is pretty straightforward in those previous games too. Like I would say, um, maybe related to this decision, I was sort of struck with how many poor points of view uh existed in a lot of these maps where it was like oh these guys like even though it's see like these guys can't actually see a great deal of the map from from where they are right like i'm controlling one of those uh i've got guys posting up in a building somewhere right three-story building they don't have like a commanding view that i'm used to getting mm-hmm. it's like company of heroes one where it's like i'm gonna put someone in a tall like stone building that tends to mean you have a pretty all-encompassing perspective here here it was like i i was often feeling like okay i have blind spots i've got a lot of guys mm-hmm. here but there are there are blind spots to each position so i'm curious if these mm-hmm. two things are related that there's a, a bit more of a mm-hmm. nuanced line of sight system and then a sort of recon uh system built alongside this so in terms of our buildings and the site that you provide or get provided when you're in one of them pretty much we've taken the code two formula that it's a standardized site for all of them but that's still mm-hmm. something that was under construction right now and we may for example like in company heroes one there are churches where you could see further and we have to factor in height gameplay as well so we talked about this quite a bit internally where we're like well wait a second do we want if you if there's a building in an elevated position should should they get a really good strong site here and maybe it makes sense to um, and we're going to be, you know, we're going to probably be experimenting and tinkering that with a little bit. Another angle we might take is um, making use of those like dedicated reconnaissance units. So let's say it's the scout for the Americans. Maybe if you put them in a building, they can see further. That could be another option that could work. Again, we have to kind of, well, we're just much going to have to test this and experiment with our players to figure out if that's uh, good or bad or, you know, or yeah. vice versa. So yeah that's uh that's definitely one aspect right there um but then you have the whole signals uh intelligence aspect of this yes. where you're like so, cutting sorry. into people's communications yeah so and okay so in terms of the reconnaissance system so this goes back to like way back in the day when will for example was actually a community member not someone at relic where we we grabbed um, nine members uh, of our of our council and flew them into Vancouver and had like an in-depth chat for like two or three days. And one of the biggest things that came out of that chat was we all agreed we wanted to double down on reconnaissance, on information gathering for this game, that it would make sense for this theater and also the fact that it's more infantry focused as well. So we wanted to expand the reconnaissance tool set. So we we looked we did a little bit of research, looked at other games. So the reconnaissance system that you see in our game is definitely influenced by games like Ruse, Steel Division, Sudden Strike, Starcraft, all these ones that like, you know, provide that like it's not just like, oh, okay, there, there's a fog of war. Oh, and then they're upon me. It's more like so it's kind of like that early information gathering. It gives what I like about it and what I love watching our players experience is it gives more of that cat and mouse gameplay. So how, how specifically the reconnaissance system works is that if you see, um, so let's say you've got the, the Jeep with a recon upgrade. If you see an enemy unit, you'll see a marker for that. And you'll know that it's either infantry or vehicle, but you won't know what type. So it kind of gives you an initial information. It's almost like, you know, one of the things I used to love about our, our pro players is that all, all our vehicles have unique engine sounds through the fog mm. of war and that they can they can hear it coming they know that's a martyr that's a stug 
that's a tiger and they hear that and they get that pro player sense of like knowing like you know they're playing some competitive game and then they go uh oh uh oh <laughs> like and they hear it coming so it's a little bit like that as well it just gives a you know a bit of uh kind of counterplay reaction time and if you know you make use of that reconnaissance system it should feel rewarding in the in the end yeah well, one of my favorite takeaways from watching tournaments back in the day is if you look into the fog of war you obviously can't see enemy units but you can see destruction when vehicles drive through things you can see them get you know, crushed and you can even have some players who will recognize the width of a fence that's been crushed and identify the vehicle just from that it's like oh this is this is too much for me <laughs> uh by the way i'm always thrilled to hear people uh like reference ruse uh just the the a uh, few dozen of us, I think, that, that played that game. Uh, it's, always, it's always fun to to find each other because uh, mm -hmm. that's one of those RTSs that's high on my list of like really cool ideas, sort of throughout, mm -hmm. and just didn't like have it have its breakthrough. Um, I do like Steel Division quite a bit too. I think they've always done interesting things with information over mm -hmm. at Eugen, uh in mm -hmm. terms of like how you have gradients of of the fog of war. But I'm cool. To, it's it's cool to see that influence. Uh, uh, pop up here um i want to talk a little bit about because this is this is the part where i'm just going to turn it over to you and let you talk about like <coughs> cool stuff we like about our game uh but in particular i think it's um so i like i ended up i think i think i played around enough to see just about everything but like i didn't have a strong sense of like the different ways to build out battle groups but the thing that does strike strike me is that as you're choosing these upgrades, you get XP and you're choosing what your optional call-ins are going to be or your passive bonuses are going to be. That scales up into really different faction profiles uh, in the end game, right? Like by by the end there now, uh, in addition to having your 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 base army and then your battle group, by the end there you've got a really specific, uh, powerful vision of like what you've been building towards, and. I'm curious if you'd sort of talk about like based around those, like high, those, the higher level abilities, like what are some of your favorites? And then what did they translate to in terms of like tweaking those faction identities into really strong specific, uh, like, like visions for the build. Like obviously I'm like having made fun of the tiger people. I also definitely like the thing <laughs> that really stands out in my memory is like, you bet your ass I built that tiger. Oh, and, it's like, classic. It. Yeah, I just parked that tiger in the center of um your what we call it Mount Bacon, the ruins at the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. I just I just had that thing parked. Uh and was just like, yeah, they're not gonna take that. It's got in engineer squad by it. Um, I'm just going to win behind this tiger. But I'm I'm curious in terms of those high level uh sort of options you that exist in these battle groups. What are your favorites and then how do they translate into okay, well here's here's the elevator pitch for this take on on the army so i think with you know with the battle groups it's all about and some of our i know drew deneau for example talks about this quite often internally uh is it's all about filling a fantasy so it's like okay i'm going to be this army and i'm going to be you know the artillery commander i'm going to be the armored commander or the airborne or the special operations or the support or something like that so at a high level like we start with that fantasy that theme and then we go like, okay, well, what cool toys can we inject into this? And we're not definitely in the early phases. We're not too worried about balance. We're, we want a cool toy first. We want something that feels good to play with and feels really rewarding. So again, like, you know, 
uh, for the airborne, there's that carpet bomb that's really satisfying at the end. Um, in the armored, for example, there's an EZ-8 task force, which comes not only with an EZ-8 tank, but also infantry for that support. There's also, I don't know if you experienced this yet, but in the armored, there's a recovery vehicle as well. And this is the first time that the uh, a recovery vehicle is available for the allies. And what that allows you to do is it, actually, it allows you to restore your wrecked vehicles and get them in the fight. But not only that, but you can restore your enemy vehicles for the first time and use them against the enemy to, again, create a different army profile or fantasy. Just be like, I'm going to go around stealing all these wrecks and turn it against my opponent. Um, so that's another fun, you know, a fun one that's in the multiplayer pre-alpha. And both, um, in the end, uh, both factions are going to have that capability as well. Um uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm curious if I'm just curious, Will, if there's any like sort of higher level uh, like toys in the box that uh, you really dig using or like really like a specific vision you have for like, this is how I like to play this faction. Yeah, uh, like with a battle group. So um, I'm very glad that in this um, in this pre-alpha demo, we, you get a chance to see the, the Luftwaffe. They are they immediately became my favorite. They're so much fun to play with. And having that that um, airborne utility is the the Vermact is is so nice to see. But one of the ways I like playing at the moment is using the early um, Fulcrum Pioneers. So an mm -hmm. airdropped squad, it's not as strong as Grenadiers, but they have so much utility. And just using them instead of Grenadiers, I don't need early infantry. I can bring in some team weapons like HMGs, just power drop as many of those guys in as I can lock down the sectors and start building defenses mines tank traps just really locking down it then start bringing in um some of the more heavy emplacements so using the flak emplacements to just really concrete those um parts of the map that i want to hold the most just while i'm kind of stalling for time until i have the fuel to bring in tanks to, to kind of save the day almost as if it's you know holding a line with a very fragile force but on their own they are still very tough it's just a nice different way of playing it um it's a great way of augmenting your army mm -hmm. yeah i think now uh rather humiliatingly i think my breakout unit of of the my sessions with it was probably that chaffee uh tank as as the americans i was just like clinging to that thing like a life raft because uh, <laughs> it could well, well, actually that's an interesting point though because the thing that does that also occurs to me is it felt like the Germans uh, had more feel like they had more toggle options with like ammunition load uh, they're carrying like that Chaffee's kind of fire like set it and forget it right like that has mm -hmm. one ammunition load um, whereas I feel like a lot of the German tanks I was using it was like switch to high explosive or AP um, did the Shermans have that as well I'm trying to remember now uh, they do actually through their veterancy. So the Sherman, if yeah. you get vet one, you get to make a decision between a high explosive round that's good against infantry or a white phosphorus round that can actually stun an enemy tank. Right, so, right, right. Yeah, I think at a default level, the Americans are slightly more bare bones. It comes to, they're a little more, you know, a bit of our entry level faction in the sense that we want players to not be too overwhelmed by all the different options that you have, where I would say that the Wehrmacht, on the other hand, are a little more of an advanced user in the sense that they have a little bit more bells and whistles, especially on their vehicles through that that uh, field marshal system that provides the different enhancements. Yeah, yeah it was... Uh, it was it was definitely very interesting to see how I think sort of the pitch that uh, I was given sort of when I when I got my briefing on the multiplayer stuff is uh, the Americans are really 
a combined arms force, which is a very kind way to put uh, that a lot of their units are sort of incomplete in themselves uh, and require <laughs> other unit types with them. Like uh, the, the Chaffee needs infantry around it in a way that like, uh, well, my old friend, the Stug, right? Like that thing, as long as it had decent line of sight, it was kind of good against everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like it was just, it needed to get, not get overwhelmed, but beyond that, like it, it just kind of worked. Whereas, uh, yeah, the Americans, I was constantly like trying to sort of spackle over holes, uh, in, in my army, uh, mm-hmm. based on, based on what I was encountering, uh, which was interesting. It made them very, um, they felt dicey in a, in, in a way, uh, to, to play. I, I, I think I, I definitely, Felt like the Americans were straightforward in some ways, but but also uh, with with Germans, I started getting very comfortable with using abilities to just like, here I have a situation, and I have a button I have a button on my interface that handles that exact situation. Uh, whereas the Americans, a lot of times, I was like, well, shit, I just didn't build the right stuff. I need to everybody retreat. We're gonna we're gonna gather up and and mount um, a comeback here. And once those mid game units began rolling out, like the Chaffee. Um, then things start breaking my way fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're definitely correct that the Americans are a combined force and that in terms of, for example, raw power, they sometimes don't stand up toe-to-toe with their counterpart in the Wehrmacht. But again, it's about using the sum of all your parts together. So for example, I'm not too sure if you were able to interact with the American faction mechanic, which is called the support centers. And each one of those support centers actually provides some unique capabilities above your mini-map. So it's almost like a almost like a mini battle group of like capabilities. Uh, and for example, one of those is that you had, can uh, obtain an air support center. So out of the gate, without going into a battle group option, you can provide, you have air available to you for reconnaissance, for strafing, uh, to again, think of that as like a combined tool that you can make use of for those infantry pushes. Um, you also have different other support centers. For example, there's the infantry support center that provides an additional captain to be fielded on uh, alongside your infantry, and he can make use of some of his capabilities to do some pull off some really interesting flanks or do some combat bolstering. Uh, but you're right, there's, you know, as the aggressive army, it's about how you have to take the fight to them. And you kind of have to be, you know, you have to pull off some flanks. So, for example, with the Chaffee, it's a great durable vehicle in which it has a 75 millimeter gun, but you still need to flank to some degree. And that's where, for example, another thing that we haven't talked about quite yet is side armor. So, side armor mm-hmm. is a brand new thing for Company of Heroes 3. And as you're, what's great about your little Chaffee is you don't have to go all in and really get behind just the rear armor. You can actually, if you can just get the stug to focus on, for example, some infantry and cover that's trying to dislodge, and then you just get a little side armor flank off, it'll feel nice and rewarding with that Chaffee. That's interesting. Yeah, because I think the reason I ended up, maybe this is, uh, I use that Chaffee a lot. I end up microing that thing quite a mm-hmm. bit because it was fast. And so like, not <coughs> like crazy fast, but like faster than the tanks it was against. I was thinking, um, you know, when the Germans would send like a martyr out to try to deal with it, uh, I was sort of just felt bad for the martyr. Cause like, I'm just going to cheese this thing. I am mm-hmm. just going to like the martyr is a, um, sort of classic, like long tank killer, uh, built around a big gun, but it doesn't have a turret. It has to, it's, it's slow. It's vulnerable. It has to turn the entire tank body to, uh, to draw a bead on something. And yeah, my Chaffee would just sort of zip around that thing. And I'd see the martyr like, spin in circles trying to catch it and the chaffee could uh like maintain steady fire uh mm-hmm. on those on those flanks and on that rear um which worked until like 
infantry showed up to support and maybe had like Panzerfaust, <laughs> and then the yeah, chaffy exactly. was in trouble. But uh, but but yeah, it was um, yeah. I think when you bring up the support uh, centers thing, I think that does sort of help me put my finger on maybe why I ended up finding the Americans trickier than uh, Germans was. With the Germans, I felt it a little easier to play just like focusing on specific engagements and thinking mm-hmm. like I'm going to win this fight here and then I'm going to deal like I am then going to use the results of that to change the map state here. I'm going to sort of shore up my you know holdings here, go find a battle somewhere else, win that. With the support centers that the Americans had, I felt like a lot of the abilities were more um, battle wide. Situ- yeah, yeah, situational. Situational. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was like timed buffs, timed bonuses. It was like you have to call a play and mm-hmm. take advantage of this advantage you have. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times that was just like the way I was playing. It was not. It's it's interesting. The, the Germans, you could be very reactive in some mm-hmm. ways where it's like see something on the battle like quickly, like change loadout here. Deal with this with the Americans. It felt a little bit more like, OK, now it's time to go on the offensive and I'm going to speed up uh you know my my blitz across this map and and go rushing um and that was that was an interesting difference uh because yeah the the americans seemed like there was a little more emphasis on intent and like game state wide uh changes yeah you definitely i think as the americans there's there's you need to take flanking into account uh, definitely in terms of your execution on your assaults as the aggressive opponent. You know, the thing about the German faction is you can have just more of a stable front line and then continue to mm-hmm. make, you can kind of get, get, get away, away with slightly more static play because everything is a little more toe to toe. Whereas the Americans, it's as you stated, it's like, it's like you're a quarterback. Even the captain unit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you're a quarterback on football. You kind of have to like state the intention of your play. It's like, all right, people, this is what we're going to be doing on this round. So this is where reconnaissance, for, for example, Americans have more reconnaissance tools than the Germans. So it's kind of about like, okay, let's see what they're doing. All right, let's get some, you know, some units uh, on the flanks here and de- definitely prepare your attack. And uh, it takes a little while to get comfortable with that because this is one of the other things actually we haven't talked about is did you happen to make use of the tactical pause through the random skirmish button? uh so no um it seemed to not work for me that was the one thing is the uh so i assume the big tactical pause button was up there on the screen and you click it and you're supposed Mm -hmm. to get a tactical pause so it's actually it's a little hidden right now in this demo so actually if you go to the front end and you click there's a random skirmish button at the front end Uh that will get you into game where you can make use of tactical pause. Uh, if you have a little bit of extra time, I definitely uh, would encourage you to give that a shot because we'd love to hear some feedback from you on that. But that will allow you to kind of plan out those actions with the American forces a little bit against the AI. And uh, honestly, like like Will and I, we use tactical pause. Like it, like I've been playing Company Heroes for a very long time and I'm still like, especially like playing the missions, I love being able to just pause a moment and be like, all right, how do I exactly do I want to execute here? All right, there's a squad there. I'm going to grab my mortar, use some smoke. Then I'm going to use the smoke to do a neat little breach uh, within the smoke. And then, you know, stage some flanking here and there, get some air support going. It's awesome to just pause a moment, take a breather, plan out what you want to do, and then we'll kind of watch it all unfold. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, the, the tactical pause is is entirely optional. You don't, don't have to use it in single player. It's obviously not available in multiplayer. You can't 
cause live gameplay um, when you're against other people. Yeah. But it, it's there not only as a learning tool, but just to kind of help you take your, your foot off the gas a moment, take a breath and kind of appreciate all the things that you can do and play it the way that you want. Um, we're very, very grateful that it's been implemented the way that it has. Um, it really does allow you to just enjoy those moments a lot more if you're if you're playing alone. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely. I'll have to uh, when when it opens back up, uh, I'll have to play around with that more because that was one part of this where I was like, I am pretty sure that I could be doing a lot more with these Americans if like I had a better understanding of like how all these pieces fit together mm -hmm. uh whereas at the pace i was playing now the germans were very much more my speed where it was like see infantry hit high explosive blast the shit out of them <laughs> keep rolling uh whereas the americans there's a little bit more like to your point that quarterback play uh mm -hmm. all right like go out go out and execute and i was like i'm sorry i'm going as fast as i can uh, <laughs> i don't have time to uh, i do not have time to 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 uh like try to blitz all the territories right now um so i don't know if you can talk about this at all but i am i just have to ask as a old british faction uh player from co1 uh in in some ways when we think about other faction design other faction identities um will there be if you if you are someone who just loves to dig in and just blast the shit out of people with artillery uh like will will there be something for me in this uh because i think i did a bit of that with the germans uh mm -hmm. but but i'm curious of like we're gonna see some of these uh familiar sort of faction archetypes uh crop back up as we roll mm -hmm. out more more of the uh more factions for coming to heroes 3 mm -hmm. well so yeah i mean if you've i believe rob you've already played the previous pre-alpha preview that had the single player experience where yeah. you could play as the british army and hopefully that was filling a bit of that thing that was my go-to battle group for yeah sure. yeah so they had yeah. um one of the cool things about that faction where where it's at thus far is that it actually has in that you know you would have played that in that previous demo is that it, within the hq itself it um actually has a howitzer built in so so just within the hq itself and then like and we had an um an indian artillery so a dedicated battle yeah. group for that as well but yeah we will absolutely be hitting we know artillery is a big fantasy throughout all the factions and you know one of the things that i can say um and i think we see this a few times before is that you know we plan to ship this this game with more factions than ever before so there's going to be you know there's going to because yeah everyone kind of gravitates for different types of factions you know some prefer defensive some prefer offensive or artillery focused air focused so it's great to have you know all these recipes uh for different people because everyone likes you know different types of food <laughs> i guess do any I, i'm just curious like some of that is i imagine incredibly difficult to balance those fantasies against each other because having just said well i like being i like to play company of heroes and turn it into as close as i can make it into world and conflict in some <laughs> ways right which was entirely about off-map explosives like that was an entire game of like celebrating the airstrike yeah that was that was world and conflict uh in some ways and like i i do remember some people didn't like the british faction just because like if you were against a really dogged british like faction player Mm -hmm. they could just sort of ring themselves in artillery uh, and really sort of stymie your efforts to get inside. And I'm curious um, when you're sort of third game in the third game in the series, 
everyone has like passionate attachments to their company of heroes, their style of play. Also though, you have to be able to balance this mm-hmm. on its own, on its own terms. I am curious, like, are there, are there styles of play or uh, fantasies that like, just as a designer are harder to integrate than others? Are there any, are, are there any that pose problems that like give you fits as, as someone who's like in charge of making this all fun and as a map designer, making this all fun and viable uh, across this entire package? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm not saying there, no. Who there do you are. want to put on blast? <laughs> no, there definitely are. Um, we'll say types of armies uh, that really often prov- are are tough. They're challenging, and uh, you know, I'll just use again legacy of relic games, and it's often the hit and run armies. So if we look at the company heroes, that would be the Panzer Elite in the first game. And if we're looking at Dawn of War, that's the Eldar. These, those are usually often the most challenging armies to develop because of that hit and run. That hit and run playstyle, it requires a it's a heavy cognitive load. And there's a lot of micro and raw execution needed in order to make use of those armies. So in the case of Panzer Elite, for example, that was an army based on hit and run style tactics with light vehicles. And light vehicles, they, you know, when you transition into the late game, they become tough to manage because there's heavier vehicles on the field. So um, overall, hit and run has always kind of been the the, the type and style that has, has been challenging. But at the same time, uh, it's, it can be really reward, rewarding. So that's one of the types or the archetypes that can be um, tough for us, for sure. Um, Will, any other... Anything to add? I, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, you're exactly right. Um, especially with regards to the maps and map design, because we want to cater to, say, casual audience as well as a competitive audience, the two don't necessarily want the same things from from their maps. Uh, as I previously mentioned, things like choke point maps, bridge maps, they're usually more catered towards casual audiences because they can hunker down, they can invest in artillery, they can you know blow the hell out of the opposite side of the river. Um and things like those, the hit and run types of armies that Matt mentioned, they don't necessarily work on those kinds of maps because the spaces are too tight. Um, it's too enclosed. So they do tend to suffer. Um, and kind of in the reverse, building maps for the, the hit and run style factions means we need to have less heavy cover than before because light vehicles can't crush them. So we, we are being very careful in how we're designing our maps to make sure that all play styles are viable. Uh, but mm. we, we do reach a point where we will cut certain maps off and say this is definitely going to be a casual map. We want to allow that fantasy to, to be playable, so we're going to really heavily invest in it. Um, because we don't want to neglect um, either of our audiences when we're making these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point to make, Will, in terms of our audiences. Whenever we're doing designing factions, whether we're creating different multiplayer maps we're always trying to think about all the audiences that this game applies to so you've got you know you're hyper competitive you got casual you have comp stoppers you have people that just like to play with their buddies and go against the ai you have omnivores you have single player only all these things we take all that into account and like will's just said we want you want viability across the board with all these different strategies so we want to be able to you know we've talked about this a little bit throughout this chat but like we want you to be able to to focus on just an infantry only army and be successful and you know or a heavily artillery influenced army and be successful or armor or air support or for example just focusing on explosives or munitions and not so much about fuel and still be able to pull out a win and not have to like dig deep for it because you kind of avoided the fuel 
Um, but yeah, great points there in terms of the map design as well. All right. I think that um, about covers everything. There's, there's more I could dig into. Like I could, we talk about breaching, for instance, how that changes uh, <laughs> ur- urban warfare uh, and just get infinitely granular here. Yeah. Uh, but I think this has been a fantastic, like, uh, like high level survey of the multiplayer. It's been great speaking with you uh, about the game. Really enjoyed uh, the, the preview build and was really pleased with how, um, how authentic it felt and how demanding it still felt uh, in, in terms of like being a company of heroes game. So uh, it was really exciting and it's uh, definitely uh, got me very excited to sort of pick this back up uh, when company affairs three multiplayer is live. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having us again. I know this is round two, right? Hopefully yeah, there's a round three in the future. That'd be <laughs> awesome. I love these talks. They do. They, they just feel like, like a fireside chat with buddies and you get to really get into the nitty gritty. So I know, I think Will and myself really like these types of chats. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us. All right. Uh, that will do it for this week. This episode was produced by Leon Hafer through his head is hosted in the idle thumbs network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode of the community at three or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash three MA. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of three moves ahead until then uh, for uh, for Matt and Will, uh, this is Rob Zachney saying good night. <laughs>